everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with members of the U.S. intelligence community. Today, I have an old friend and former colleague, and we served together in CIA a number of years ago. His name is Mel Gamble. Mel was a chief of station, deputy chief of station in a number of places in both Africa and Latin America, served as the deputy chief of the European division and the chief of our Africa division. He is now the president of a company called Gamble Advisory Group, and he is the security advisor on a couple of Wall Street firms. Mel, welcome to AFIO Now. Thank you, Jim. And it's good to see you again. It's been uh, some some time since we've talked to each other, but uh, uh, this is, I'm glad to see that you're the president of uh, AFIO, and, uh, and I look forward to answering any questions that you may have. Mel, I understand from our uh, off-camera conversation that you served on the State Department's uh, Accountability Board on the Havana Syndrome. As you know, this has been much in the news over the last few months, and I know members would be very interested in having you talk about your uh, experiences and your views uh, of that situation. Well, let me first be clear that I, I cannot talk about the results or the findings uh, from the account Accountability Board investigation. But what I can do is provide my uh, views on the uh, the uh, Havana syndrome, the effects that it's had on some officers, and my suspicions about who may or may not be behind the attacks, as well as the potential for uh, future threats. I can start off on that, and we we can uh, go from there. Yeah, please go ahead. Okay. When uh, first of all, I'd like to commend uh, the DCIA Burns for and the IC for continuing to investigate this, the potential causes of these incidents, uh, as well as their support, both medical and psychological, to the officers who've been affected by these incidents. These, uh, if I were a new young officer joining the IC and especially the agency, I would probably probably be wary of these incidents and prone to think, believing that they were actually coincidental, psychological, environmental, et cetera. But, um, you know, I've been around a long time. Now, I hate, I don't want to put you in my book, but, you know, it's been 30 or 40 years since we've been doing this. And uh, you begin to see a pattern, a similar pattern with how the U.S. government responds to these incidents and the one and how they've done it in the past. And this is what uh, raises some concern to me about how we are handling this. Uh, but as I said, a, at least uh, the DCIA and the IC are uh, looking into this much more diligently than they have in the past. Historically, if I may continue, uh, if you go back to the 60s, which was a little earlier than, than us, Jim, but uh, with the microwave attacks in, in Moscow, uh, during this time, the Soviets were suspected of conducting these microwave attacks against the uh, embassy in Moscow. The Soviets denied it, but we continued to complain about it. It was only after we started to see the deaths well, people dying from Parkinson's disease, as well as a number of officers either uh, developing or dying from cancer, that we uh, really took it seriously and uh, and then tried to uh, help those people that were involved. That's uh, one factor. 
And then we go to when we go to the 70s, we look at uh, Agent Orange in Vietnam. It was a similar situation where mil military soldiers were returning from Vietnam after being affected by what was called Agent Orange, which is a, a, a tactical herbicide that the U.S. military used to clear uh, leaves and vegetation uh, in Vietnam to fight against the Vietnamese. These military soldiers expressed uh, concern about the chemicals used and complained to the VA at that time. The VA didn't take them seriously. And it was only years later that they finally acknowledged that Agent Orange had affected a number of these soldiers and they began to treat them. And then we moved to the stage of the effects of uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, this goes back to the Revolutionary War where people were affected and we could build cases all, all the way on that. But it was only recently when we started to look at people, our officers returning from uh, serving in the war zones, uh, specifically Afghanistan and, and Iraq, and the military as well, the impact that it had on, on our, our military soldiers, uh, did we start to take it seriously and start to treat people that had PTSD. Uh, we tried to categorize it once again, but we realized that anyone could be impacted by the PTSD. And finally, we reached today where we have the Havana syndrome, or as they say, anomalous health incidents. Based on that past history that I mentioned, we see that people have been affected medically and psychologically. The U.S. government initially didn't want to believe that these events were, were occurring, and they, uh, they are now beginning to uh, react on it. I'm going to stop here and see if, if there are any other questions uh, before I continue. Mel, this has reportedly affected not just uh, serving officers, but also their families. What kind of impact has this had on uh, morale within the ranks? It has had a tremendous impact on, on morale. It's a threat that people can't, cannot pin down. You don't know when it's going to happen or where it's going to happen. And the, the threat is much larger than, than we, uh, we, we want to acknowledge or we seem to not want to acknowledge. Uh, but let me give you an example of when a, uh, if a person, there could be a reception in, in, in the, in the, uh, in a room, and if the frequency may, I may not hear anything, I may not feel anything, but a person next to me, one may, may hear something, a, a, another person may feel something, a third person may become dizzy, and a, th and a fourth person may feel convulsions. So, so that impact is different, and, and others may not hear anything. So that's the largest threat. So with most people, the morale, it's affecting their, their morale. They want to be believed, first of all, and then they want to be treated. We had problems initially with this uh, because people did not, I don't want to beat up on state, but some, age, some agencies, um, they're not set up to treat people as quickly as as the CIA is. That's the great thing about the CIA. And everyone else knows it. Uh, all the other agencies know that we take care of our people. Uh, so they look to us to uh, for support 
and to solve these problems sometimes, which in this case, though, it's not a C, just a CIA problem. It's an IC problem. So it's up to the IC to really take take the lead from my perspective. I know the CIA has has taken the lead in part on this. And uh, as we were discussing off camera, the current director, um, Bill Burns, has actually set up an informal panel to advise him on the Havana syndrome. Yes, yes, he's he set up a panel uh, that's that's looking into this as well as uh, working with the uh, IC uh, ODNI, who uh, if if they don't have the lead on it, they they are the is the organization that will bring everyone together to um, to try to find out what the main problem is here. Now let's switch subjects. You told me a little while ago that you served on the Biden transition team. And part of your duties was to take a look at diversity within the intelligence community. What can you tell our audience about that? Well, the Biden administration did take seriously uh, looking at diversity and trying to bring together as many people, uh, trying to bring together as diverse a group of people and women uh, into, into his organization. When we looked at it, there were a lot of issues across the IC. Some intelligence organizations were doing a very good job trying to have as much a diversity group diverse group as possible while other organizations did uh, almost nothing on diversity and women i when I, I when i say diversity i also include women in that but i'll uh, sometimes i'll break it out and to make sure that it's clear that it's when we're talking about diversity is uh, a diverse group of people and women. And I also want to clarify it a little more. When I speak of diversity, we're also looking at, at Middle Eastern, uh, Iranians, who, who uh, tend to fall into a different group uh, because they are, we, we've got this complicated system of who's white and who's, who's not. Uh, in that sense, uh, that's the American way. But diversity really crosses a, a wide range of uh, people. Can you tell us a little bit more about the findings and some of the things that the Biden administration would like to do uh, or encourage within the IC? One of the first things is to acknowledge that there there is is a problem. And it's I, I wish it was a simple problem that we, we could solve, but it, but it, it is very complicated. For example, in one organization, you may have leadership at the top that really wants to recruit a diverse group of people. And they and that leader, for example, will dictate will uh, dictate downward that uh, I, I would like to have this done. Uh, but the problem is uh, becomes one of uh, who will the next level senior senior executives uh, will they implement it? And if they don't, because they feel that it's not the right thing to do, as as you know, when you're managing groups of people, they will figure out a way to bureau bureaucratically uh, stall on it. But then you may have another organization where the top leadership and the and the next level uh, are trying to effectively do it. But then you have the middle management that will not implement it or will stall on it because they feel that it's it's a threat to them. And so we need a better way of, of, of 
persuading people that this is in the best interest. It's a national security issue. It's in the best interest of everyone if we have a diverse uh, group of pe uh, people working for us with different ideas. And this is not just uh, African-Americans and Asian-Americans and, and uh, people of color or, or women. It's also regional. Uh, it's regional in the terms of having people from Mississippi to Oregon uh, that, that will join our uh, organizations because they too, one, they represent the, the, our country uh, from, from different aspects, Midwesterners to, to Southerners to Northerners. As you know, with the agency, for example, it started off as an organization that was uh, the East Coast, the Ivy League uh, group. Uh, to my surprise, I didn't know until I read, I think, I don't think it was, maybe it was the Kobe book or something, where uh, Catholics were in, initially were not acceptable as well as well as Jews. But we, we, we obviously come a long ways from, from that, but we still need to uh, be aware of just uh, a more diverse group of people from, and regional recruitment of, of people. So that, that one, they understand, they receive different perspectives on, on, on things, as well as being able to communicate with each other better. Mel, you and I grew up in the CIA during the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. How did we do during those years? We, we had our ups and downs. Uh, we, in the 90s, I'd say, was the high point of, uh, of minorities, meaning more so um, African-Americans and Hispanics. After the 90s, as you, you saw, uh, Women, at say the 2000s, we, we started to recruit more women into the organization. When I, I served, um, it probably wasn't noted, but I, my last year, uh, Jose Rodriguez asked me to, he was the DDO, asked me to serve uh, as the uh, head of the recruitment center for, for, the, for the DO. And with a specific directive to recruit uh, more minorities and women to bring into the organization. The first thing that I, I uh, realized was that the group that we had in the recruitment center were people that had settled. So we didn't have necessarily our best and our brightest as I've learned from other organizations going out recruiting our best and, and our brightest. It was a job just for some people who some, we had some good officers and then we had some that, as I said, had settled there. But that wasn't as much of a problem as how, how we saw people. Um, we wanted to recruit everyone from the Ivy League schools, uh, obviously with 3.0s. Uh, so, so the uh, Hispanic uh, kid that comes to this country and learns uh, learns English and and goes to college, uh, works hard, uh, works two jobs to to um, to get it, get his degree, and then he might have a a, a two point nine. But you know, I'll take that person with the two point nine that's aggressive and and has that that desire to to um, do well compared to the 3.5 person, no life experiences or anything. 
because when you come into this agency, uh, as, as you know, with recruiting, we uh, need people that have a little street smarts, some common sense, so that when they're out on the street, we know that, that they, they can manage and handle themselves well. I'll, I won't name uh, the officer, but when I, again, when I was the head of the recruitment center, I received a phone call from, from an officer who, who said, if you send me two more lawyers from Harvard down here, I'm going to shoot myself and you because I don't want people that have, haven't been out in the street and, and they're whining about going into the woods and stuff uh, and using a compass. But it's hard to tell what type of people you have when you first get them in. But during the interviews, we made sure that we got a better sense of, of their ability to, to move around on the street as well as uh, work well with other people. I'm with you, Mel. I put a high degree of value on life experience and street smarts. What I found was even though we never had as many uh, minorities as we probably needed, quite often the minorities were very, very good at the street smarts because mm -hmm. they had learned things the hard way. They had to kind of figure out the terrain and then survive in the terrain. And those were exactly the skills that we needed, you know, particularly in the areas that you and I grew up in, uh, like the Middle East and Africa. That's rough turf. And, you know, you've always lived in a large urban American city. That's not necessarily the best preparation. No, it's not. And uh, we try to teach, as, again, we try to teach our officers uh, some things you can give them, but then some things is just that I always say, I'll take that person with the sixth sense because they're going to, they know when uh, there's danger or they, they need to figure out how to get out of a situation uh, quickly. You know, even though there's still work to be done, I was very pleased in the early 2000s when it was my privilege to serve as the chief of the Near East Division that we were bringing on a larger number of Arab Americans and uh, South Asian Americans because those were exactly the kinds of cultural and social and linguistic skills that we needed in the Near East Division. You know, I'm white and I'm six foot two. And while my Arabic uh, was quite good, I didn't necessarily blend in in some of those countries in which I served. And I was very pleased to see that we were bringing officers in who were going to do a much better job of blending in than I did. I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And it was just lessons learned, even from developmentals that, that I had, uh, people that, that I talked to from different ethnicities, uh, best way to put it. I remember one Chinese diplomat that I had talked to, you know, he's, he, we were just friends. But one day he said to me, he said, you know what the problem with you Americans, you know what the problem is with you? And I looked at him sort of stunned and, and I said, no, tell me. He said, your problem is that you, you think that because you know the language, you can speak Chinese and, and you studied the culture and everything that you understand us better. You try to uh, be Chinese when, when you're not. He said, we appreciate you being American. He said, because then we know you're going to just tell us the truth and speak frankly about it rather than sending the, the signals to us. The point of that was that you can deal with uh, people across the board, but, but that diversity and helping you understand 
what uh, if someone was Chinese, they could help me understand better um, what what I should do and shouldn't do culturally on these things. When we first joined, it was uh, you know a class, and then we go out and we did what we did. But it's a much more diverse, complicated world today. And, and if I may uh, throw throw out one point, I. When I went to South Africa, I was COS in South Africa, and I had started to work with the South African government. The, it was the ANC, the African National Congress, that Mandela had, had become president, but the ANC was now in power and the apartheid government was, was gone. But what I learned from actually both groups was that the diversity that they used to uh, do what they they needed to do. For example, the ANC, you know, I thought uh, naively that it was uh, predominantly black and uh, maybe a, a few British uh, here and there. But it turns out that they had Indians. They uh, there were Indians that worked for them. There were Greeks. There were Afrikaners. There were Brits. There were South African coloreds is what they call it was a diverse group of people that they used to work against the apartheid government. So it wasn't just South African blacks, as I naively believed. And I thought, this is what our agency should look like in terms of uh, the people that we need to, to work against, because we are a global organization. So it's not if we were just working against one specific group, okay, it's, that's a little easy. But we're a global organization, and we need a more diverse group of people to work. Amen. Well, Mel, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know that our viewers will love to watch and listen to it. And I want to thank you for coming on the program today. Well, thank you, Jim. It's, it's been a pleasure, and hopefully this will benefit some people uh, and will I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. Thanks again. Thanks.